Let's pray. Our God, on the day of Pentecost, you sent the Holy Spirit to your church in power. But Lord, in that upper room before he came, you promised you would send him to lead us into truth, into all truth. And so, Lord, that is our prayer this morning as we come to your word, that you would come by your spirit, speak to us, and lead us into all truth, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning we come to think about the importance of words we use uh, from the book of Proverbs. And actually, it's quite a difficult thing for us to get our heads around, I think, because words are just things that we take for granted. They're just part of the way things are in our world, whether we're speaking them, or listening to them, or singing them, or reading them, or writing them. We're bombarded by the presence of words that it's nearly a subconscious thing to us, isn't it? That they're there. It's like breathing. Even for those who can't speak, I know a number of people who are deaf and I have very few words in sign language, but I know that those words are things that bring us together. They're just always there. I've heard that the average person speaks 30,000 words per day. Now that's over 850 million in a lifetime. Um, And if you live to be over 80 years old, that number edges up towards the billion mark. I think I know a few people who are probably close to that already, but there you go. These are just the words we speak, never mind the words we think, never mind the words we read or hear. They play such a central role in our lives, and words are powerful. Just think about the words, I have a dream, or we shall fight on the beaches, or even Mr. Paisley's famous response to the Anglo-Irish agreement, we say, never. I wanted you to do the impersonation of Mr. Paisley so I didn't have to, Um, but that's what he said. Words are are memorable, they stick with us, don't they? They're instantly recognizable. Words are so, so important. Even think of the joint posts of first and deputy first minister. That little word deputy, even though the two posts have equal power, it's important, isn't it? It's important to some people. Words are important. But I'm not sure that as Christians we always grasp just how important words are as we live out our faith because one of the central truths of the Bible is that our God is a God who speaks and we as creatures who are made in his image, we speak. God is a speaking God. He spoke and creation happened. He said, let there be light and there was light. Our relationship with God is based primarily on the fact that we have a God who speaks to us through his word. Yes, it's true that the word became flesh and he spent his short lifetime here on this earth. Yes, it's true that God is everywhere, so there's nowhere he doesn't exist, nowhere we can get away from his presence. But God's relationship with his people has always been based on words. He spoke with Adam, he spoke with Noah, he spoke to Abraham, he spoke um, with Moses through the veil, but as a man, face to face. He spoke through his son, he spoke through the apostles. Even think about Jesus' ministry. If you ever take one of the Gospels and read them, it'll strike you how many times Jesus says, as it is written, or do you not know that it is written? When he was tempted by the devil, he resists and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Even the central events of our faith that we've been singing about, the cross and the resurrection, are are made up with 
incredibly significant words. Jesus said that he would be betrayed by one of his disciples just so that the Son of Man would go as it is written about him. It was important that he would be pierced for our transgressions. That's written in Isaiah. So his death was crucifixion. He quoted the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm predicted, that predicted he would be abandoned in death. That many would come and mock him. That his clothes would be divided up by people casting lots. A psalm which ends with the words, he has done it, which could also be translated, it is done. Not he has done it, but it is done, or even it is finished. Words he also spoke on the cross. Then after he rose from the dead and, and he was walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he talk to them about? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. God's words are pretty important. In the Old Testament, that the presence of God traveled around in the Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments in, that were inscribed on them by the finger of God. But in the Hebrew, those, those commandments aren't called Ten Commandments. They're called, in the original Hebrew Bible, they're called the Ten Words. The Ten Words. Words which represented the very presence of God. That's why in the front of your Bible it says Holy Bible. Not that there's anything special about the, the physical book or the paper or the ink or whatever else makes up a book. But the words on these pages through the Spirit are alive and they're God's word. And it's not the main point of the sermon this morning, but I, I want to say this in starting. Don't neglect God's words. Don't neglect reading them or hearing them or meditating on them, thinking about them. Don't ever apologize for God's words. Don't twist them. Don't misrepresent them. And don't ever underestimate their power. They are powerful and life-giving and freeing and eternal and awesome. They bring us new life. They change us and shape us from the inside out. They, they guide us and they're the power of God to us. Don't underestimate them. Especially as we as his image bearers reflect him in being speaking people. So if God's words are important, and, and that's the, the framework really for everything that we're going to think about this morning, and they're so powerful, it follows that for us as God's people, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as restored people, that our words matter too. We read in Matthew earlier that Jesus says our words are a reflection, an overflow of what is in our hearts, and in fact will be judged for our words. Every careless word we speak we'll have to give an account for. Now, that's a bit scary, but we, we don't fear that judgment because remember that our sins by our words are many and his mercy is more. We don't fear judgment, but we do take these words of warning from Jesus very seriously. Our words matter to Jesus. It's how we're saved. Paul says to the Romans that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is just an outworking of what Jesus said. If God gives us the gift of salvation, he moves by his spirit in our heart, gives us a new life to convict us of sin, to know Jesus is Lord, then that will overflow into our words as we confess Jesus is Lord. And so we're saved. Now, I suspect that for many of us here today, we know this. We know that God spoke creation into existence. We know that Jesus' ministry was a fulfillment of what God said 
Many of us have known a moment when we first believed that Jesus is alive, that he's paid for our sins, and we've confessed him as Lord of our lives. But I also suspect that many of us don't really appreciate the importance of words in our lives. And, and what I mean is, is simply this. If a stranger came up to you in the street today and said to you, you know, so-and-so told me that you're a Christian, what difference does that make in your day-to-day -day life? I suspect that you might tell them a bit about what you believe, um, a bit about things that you go to in church and services, Bible studies, prayer meetings, whatever. Maybe a bit about the way you serve, but you wouldn't mention a thing about the words you say. Now you might accuse me of being picky there, and I suppose that'd be fair enough, because in all those activities that I've mentioned, words are implied, aren't they? In all of those activities, services and prayer and Bible study and so on, words are part of the building blocks of those activities, so you don't need to say it. But what I'm driving at is that you probably wouldn't say, you wanna know what my life looks like, like as a Christian? Well, let me tell you, my words, the words that come out of my mouth are very different to the words that came out before I was saved. I don't think we'd say that, but I think we should, because it should be the case. But instead, we join with the world and we minimize the importance of our words. When somebody says the right thing, but has no intention of actually living up to their words, we say that they're just paying lip service. Look, that's just lip service. We say things like, actions speak louder than words. And there's truth in that because when somebody does just pay lip service or if their lack of action um, goes against what they've said in their words, then we call that person a hypocrite. And we rightly do that. But the fact that we do that and the fact that that annoys us so much, the fact that it really it grinds, it, it goes against the grain, well, that's actually evidence for the fact that the words really do matter a lot to us. If somebody says they're going to do something, we expect them to. The people who are defending our prime minister right now are appealing to us to, you know, to just trust this instinct that actions will speak louder than his words. Let's not focus on the fact that you know, he might have been less than honest in parliament. Let's focus on the, the cost of living crisis. Let us get on with leveling up or sorting out the protocol or whatever. But the problem that Mr. Johnson has is that many people can't give him any credibility because they feel that they cannot trust his words. And the Bible never underestimates the importance of our words. The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrisy, of course, and we do well to remember that. But that doesn't take away the power and the importance of our words. In the book of Proverbs, there are 915 verses. I didn't count them. And 222 of those verses, which is about a quarter, relate in some way to our speech. It's pretty much as a quarter of the book. The Psalms describe evil words as a sharp sword which cuts us. Jesus says that our words are a reflection of our hearts. James says that the tongue is, is a fire, set on fire by hell. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire. No human being can tame it. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of our words. Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words bless and they can curse. Words can start revolutions and wars and they can negotiate terms of peace. Words can help and they can harm. So as we dig into what the book of Proverbs says practically about our words, obviously we're not gonna look at all 222 verses on the subject, you'll be glad to hear. 
the words are just such a fundamental building block of how we exist. There's too much. But the words we say are a bit like the air we breathe, I think. We don't think a lot about the air we breathe, and I think sometimes we don't think about the words we say. But air is essential to us, and so are the words we say. If the air around us is clean, then our quality of life will be good, or it will be better at least, will be healthier. But if the air is polluted, then it actually poses a serious threat to us. And if the words we say are polluted in some way, then our lives will suffer for it, and so will our relationships. So we're going to look at these. We're just going to look at a few ways um, of using healthy words and unhealthy words in the book of Proverbs. We'll start with, with the healthy words. Firstly, encouraging words are healthy words. We can use our words to encourage one another. We thought about this a little bit last week. To give others confidence that they didn't have before. To lift them up when they're feeling down. To give them strength when they feel weak. Proverbs 15.30 says that bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. And I've used the NASB because it's more literal. Good news puts fat on the bones. Now you might think, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, I hasten to add, don't give me any good news if it's going to put fat on my bones. I don't need any more. But in the world where this proverb was written, obesity just wasn't a thing, okay? We're not thinking in, in those kind of terms. Fat on the bones meant that somebody wasn't starving. They were healthy. Receiving good words, words of encouragement, has a profoundly positive effect on us. Actually, Proverbs says it's good for our bodies. In Proverbs 25, it's described like cold water to a thirsty soul. So is good news from a far country. Good news, words of encouragement really do have the power to change us, to transform us. When I was thinking about um, applying for the ministry, I have to say that I, I really doubt it myself. Um, I'm not sure that I would have obeyed the call if it hadn't been for a number of people that I remember saying to me, without knowing what I was thinking about, I think you'd make a really good minister. I think you'd be great at it. That encouragement made all the difference to me. Um, you have to apply in September, and, and I remember the summer before um, the application was due in, um, three people separately, um, after I had given a talk um, in Romania, actually said, when you got up and started to talk, I just thought, he's a minister. And I thought, okay, Lord, I can't ignore that. But those words of encouragement really helped. I don't know what way I was holding the Bible. Two of those people said, the way you held the Bible, I just thought you were a minister. And I thought, well, that's just weird. But those words were really encouraging and really pushed me along. As Christians, we're called to be encouragers of one another in any way. Paul said to the Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we're to encourage one another. We're to build one another up, lift one another up. Encouraging words are healthy words, but secondly, rebuking words are healthy words. Now, this probably seems all wrong to us as we look at it at first, because for many of us, rebuking somebody or confronting somebody is actually a really scary prospect. We'd rather just let them get on with whatever they're doing. But we read in Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Notice the word afterward in there. It might not be pleasant at the time, but afterwards you'll find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. 
This isn't our instinct. We know that people enjoy flattery a lot more than people enjoy rebuke. But it is possible at some point after a person is flattered, they might realize that the flattery was really shallow. Not, perhaps not even true. Perhaps not even that the person actually believed it themselves. We're not talking about genuine compliments. Those are good. But flattery is hollow. But on the other hand, a rebuke, a rebuke might be painful at the time. But afterwards, if we think about it, if it was a genuine rebuke and it came from a good place with good motives, we might realize that the person rebuked us actually because they care about us and they wanted to help us and they wanted us to become better people. I really don't enjoy rebuking my children. I suppose it'd be weird if anybody did enjoy it, but I, I really don't like it. I try to do it as gently as I can, but when they don't quite get it, when they're having fun doing something, Anna was walking along like the, the, the arm of one of the chairs this morning, which is about that wide, and I thought, if you fall, you're going to break your neck. You know, when, when they don't quite get it, they're having fun, they sometimes get very upset. I move something, out, out, something sharp out of the reach of our toddler, Rebecca, or I tell her that, no, she can't pick up her granny's really expensive ornament in case it smashes, or whatever it is, she cries. She screams at me. And I hate it. But the rebuke is worth it, isn't it? So that she learns what is dangerous, what's okay to use as a toy, and, and what isn't. But sometimes we're not very good at this, especially not so much with children, but with each other in church. We're afraid of offending people. And I, and I say that as a minister too. You know, it, it's something that's hard to do because if there's ever something that I think, I, I need to bring that up with them, I'm immediately thinking... What happens if this person gets really annoyed with me? What if they leave the church? What if that service that they're offering becomes just an empty gap because they're not here? What happens if I offend them? But Jesus tells us to do it. In Matthew 18, he says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's a hard way for us to use words, but it is healthy. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another as a surgeon sometimes has to inflict a wound on us to help us, so a rebuke might be. It might be painful, but if we're to have integrity in what we say, it's important. And thirdly, healthy words are words that restore relationship. We're going to look at the flip side of this at the moment. When we, in a moment when we look at unhealthy words that put a strain on relationships. But firstly, healthy words are words that restore relationships. There are two important principles um, in the book of Proverbs in general when it comes to restoring relationship, and that is to answer softly and to answer carefully, to ponder your response. In Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then in Proverbs, again in 15 verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. We're to respond to people softly and carefully and thoughtfully. You know, when we use soft words, we can take the tension right out of a situation. When somebody says something that sounds absolutely wrong and bang out of order to us, we could respond by saying, don't be so stupid. 
Or we could say, oh, I, I didn't realize that. I didn't see it like that. Can you help me see that? Can you explain why you think that? You know, one of those responses will rile the other person up while the other will keep the relationship in a better place. And the more time we have to answer someone, the more we give ourselves the opportunity to calm down, the more helpful an answer we might give. Sometimes to do that, we need to take a step away, not say things in the heat of the moment. Maybe don't reply to that email just right away. Just take some time to think about it. But sometimes we're in the heat of the moment. We don't have the opportunity to step away. But it's important for us at least to be thoughtful, to be thinking, to be pondering, what is the best way for me to answer this, rather than just the first angry thought that comes to mind. So those are healthy ways of using our words. There are many more, but those are just a few. But there are also unhealthy ways of using our words. And of course, one way of using unhealthy words is the flip side of being soft and thoughtful, which is to speak hastily and angrily. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking but whoever restrains his lips is prudent, is prudent. And we read much more in in Proverbs 26 about not getting involved in other people's arguments. It's only going to add to the fire. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. If we don't think carefully before we speak, if we we rush in to give an answer, we may well end up saying something that we'll regret. We'll, We'll say too much. I'm sure we've all been there. There are particular people in the world, I'm sure you know people like this, who think that if they don't express their opinion about everything, the world will be a much poorer place. You know, they just have to be heard about everything. We don't want to be that person. Somebody once said, and I like this, it's a modern proverb, somebody once said, better to remain silent and be thought of as an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I'm sure that many of us have had the experience of having foot-in-mouth syndrome. You know, we, we, we speak too quickly. We speak too with, without thinking, just too fast, and we regret it. We end up saying, I wish I hadn't said that if I just kept my mouth shut. Remember the power of words. Proverbs says, remember that death and life are at stake. James says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. Harsh words, angry words, quick words they have the potential to cause significant damage to our relationships. Proverbs 12:18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Jesus says, we'll give an account for every careless word. So let's be careful with our words, especially when the heat is on in argument. A second unhealthy way of using our words is, is to use dishonest words. We thought a bit earlier about flattery, and flattery is just one example of dishonesty, really. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Flattery, really, is lying. It's usually done with some sort of false motive, isn't it, to get something in return. We kind of try to butter somebody up. A rebuke is painful at the time, but it might have a long-term benefit. But flattery is the opposite. It's really quite nice at the time. It seems to solve a problem in the moment. Who doesn't like a compliment? But later on, we probably realize that the words weren't true. And that hurts. We're not to flatter. 
And we're not to be dishonest by boasting either. Boasting really is bragging about things we didn't do or, or taking credit where we don't deserve it. Proverbs 25:14 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Clouds and wind without rain, they're, they're, they could be threatening, they can look the part, but if the rain doesn't come really, there's no danger. There is one type of boasting permitted in the Bible, and that's boasting in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 31, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Because you can't boast in the Lord dishonestly, if you want to boast about the hope you have or about how loving Jesus is, you can't do wrong because you'll never be able to overstate those things. Those things are greater than we can imagine. But we're not to boast and be dishonest about ourselves. We're to be humble and, and honest. So there's flattery, there's boasting, and then there's just out and out lying as unhealthy words. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. I'm not going to really spend any time unpacking those words because it's fairly self-explanatory. Followers of Jesus are to be honest. We're not to be known for being liars, spreading false rumors, providing false accounts, anything like that. The Lord hates lying. And the Bible doesn't make distinctions between different types of lies either. There's no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie is a lie. And God hates a lying tongue. Like the rebuke, even if the truth is difficult to tell, it will make our lives and relationships better. And then the final unhealthy way to use words um, is in gossip, or at least the final way we're going to think about this morning. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down, we read earlier. Gossip is very dangerous. But I think as we finish off this morning, we, we have to be honest with ourselves here because none of us are immune to a bit of gossip, are we? Churches are not immune to gossip, but gossip's deadly. We need to be honest about it and we need to root it out. And everybody in the church, from newcomers to leaders, elders, yes, even ministers, we're not immune and we need to be on the lookout for gossip in their lives. But the main reason why gossip is dangerous is because we won't notice it because it's desirable. It's hard for us to resist. We, we love a good juicy piece of gossip. Again, we, we read earlier in, in Proverbs 26, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the man's inmost parts. There's something just inherently attractive about gossip. We love it. And I said that ministers aren't immune, so don't think I'm picking on any of you today. I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, as you know, um, I'm your assistant minister, and God willing, I will be eligible um, at some point next year. If anybody um, out there would like me to be their minister, they'll be able to call me to do that. And the talking has started. I can tell you months in advance the talking has started. And, and I, I don't mind some of it. You know, people say, what sort of church would you like to go to? And, you know, I, I don't mind. I'll go anywhere. But as I meet up with friends, for even friends who are ministers, as I go to training events in the college, as I have to do, gossip is never far away. Oh, so-and-so is about to retire. What do you think about going to that church? That come up at the right time for you. Such and such a church is vacant, but there was a big argument there. Oh, I heard it. I heard all about it. Oh, there was a big split. Oh, you wouldn't want to go there. You wouldn't touch that with a barge pole. 
that clerk of session and that congregation, they're going to be vacant, but he's nuts. Don't go there. Not this congregation. I heard that that church's halls are falling apart. If you go there, your money's just going to be drained fixing those halls. What would you think about going to such and such a place? Now, some of those conversations are genuine, and some of them, I think, do contain genuinely useful information, and some of them come from a good place because people care about you. But usually, there's a very thin line somewhere between giving you useful information and people just wanting to talk about that split in that church or that guy who's nuts or whatever it happens to be. And I hate it at the moment because it follows me everywhere I go. But as I've prepared this week, I think the reason I hate it so much, I think I've realized, is because deep down, I can't resist it. I love it. I want to know. I want to know everything about everywhere. I'm selfish. I want to avoid going into a car crash where there might be big problems, even though the Lord might be calling me there. Am I asking him where he wants me to go, or am I eliminating some places that I wouldn't like to go and then asking him where he would like me to go? Gossip is attractive to all of us. And what a disaster it would be if gossip, if false information would prevent us from doing what the Lord wants us to do. The situation will be different for each one of us, but as attracted as we are to gossip, and I think that we have to be real about that, we need to realize that it's deadly. It's deadly to relationships. It's disloyal. It's divisive. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Gossip is very unhelpful and it's deadly. Maybe you have been hurt in a relationship because people have talked. Gossip is deadly. Healthy words are encouraging. They can be rebuking. They can be truthful. They can be restoring of relationships. But unhealthy words are angry, spoken too quickly, dishonest and gossipy. We've covered a lot this morning, but if you go away today, maybe discouraged because you realize that your life maybe doesn't recognize some of these values in in the words that you say, or if you go away this morning and you think that the main point is to clean up the way you talk a wee bit, then you've missed the point, and you need to hear this last point, because Jesus said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. At the end of the day, we shouldn't go away today discouraged because we don't have a mouth problem, really. We have a heart problem. When our words are wrong, it's because our hearts are wrong. We're meant to be image bearers of God, the speaking God, but we're fallen people. We're sinful. And so when our words don't quite live up to what they should, it's because our hearts don't live up to what they should. But Jesus died on the cross to fix our wrong hearts. He offers forgiveness for our sin, whether that's spoken or unspoken, and he gives new life to people who put their faith in him. To have new life, to have clean hearts, we need Jesus. And when we receive him by faith, he promises to be in us and with us. He transforms us from the inside out by his power. One result of that change is that you'll use healthier words. Maybe right now you need to ask him to do that, to help you with your words, to remove all the unhealthy habits and replace them with healthy ones. But if you're a follower of him, that is a prayer that he will answer. And we know that he's given us his wisdom on words in his word. 
and he loves us and he will transform us and he will complete the work he has started in us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we know that all too often we do not reflect you as we should in the words that we use. But Lord, we thank you for your wisdom in the book of Proverbs, which directs us to use healthy words, words that build one another up, words that are true, even when they are hard. And so, Lord, again, we pray that as you have spoken to us by your Spirit, that you would so work in us by your Spirit to change us into the people you would have us be, to speak the words of Christ to one another, which are the words of eternal life, and to glorify him in all that we say and do for his sake. Amen.